Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. That was the sound of an accordion player on the train from Paris to Versailles. I'm in France for the International Communications Association's annual conference, which has been great. A lot of new ideas and science related to the intersection of tech, media, and democracy. I'm also taking the opportunity to do a little tourism. Elsewhere in the world, this week, the Philippine Congress declared Ferdinand Marcos Jr. the winner of the recent election, confirming the outcome and that he will become the country's next president. Marcos, known by his nickname Bong Bong, is of course the son of the late dictator and kleptocrat with the same name, who was president from 1965 to 1986. Marcos Sr. declared martial law in 1972, a year before his second term was to come to an end, ushering in years of brutality, oppression, and poverty in the Philippines. To learn more about the role of social media in the rehabilitation of the Marcos brand, and to dig a little deeper into the conditions that drive disinformation, I spoke to Jonathan Corpus Ong. Here's Jonathan. I am Dr. Jonathan Corpus Ong. I'm Associate Professor of Communication at UMass Amherst and Fellow at Harvard Kennedy School. So Jonathan, can you tell me a little bit about your research area and your research interests? Sure. So I am a communication professor and most of my work deals with media ethics and digital politics with an interest in the global south um, coming from the Philippines. Most of my work is focused on the Philippines and broader Southeast Asia. Um, My research interests are on digital um, labor and workers. So the conditions of workers um, nowadays, themes of precarity and also aspiration. Um, My work is also very insistently ethnographic in approach, um, trying to capture experiences of ordinary people and workers, how they deal with social media. So I'm very much interested also in digital politics. Since 2016, most of my work has uh, pivoted towards more um, explicitly political communication and digital politics, even though it's very much grounded in that ethnographic tradition and also centering the workers within this whole ecosystem. And that's my where my work on paid trolls and where they come from would come in. So we're going to get into the Philippines in particular and what's happening in the Philippines at the moment. But I had the pleasure of attending a workshop that you hosted recently that was under the banner of what you call the true costs of misinformation. Now, you were one of the chief curators of that event, as I understand it. And drew together really just an incredible uh, group of researchers and thinkers. Can you explain your worldview on these issues of misinformation at the moment, how you're thinking about it, and you know what was the sort of thesis behind that event? We were um, super happy to host over 150 participants, 
on Zoom for a two-day event called True Costs of Misinformation at Harvard Kennedy School. So this is an event also co-organized with Professor Joan Donovan and Gabrielle Lim at um, the Shorenstein Center. And we really wanted to open a conversation as to how we could have a more critical discussion in terms of methodologies of how exactly we can document harms and digital harms and assign specific figures, um, perhaps a financial cost to specific events of misinformation, what it might, how it might impact hospitals, how it might impact schools, um, local government, and how they can also build up their capacity in-house to respond to misinformation events. So how can we put a price tag to misinformation and who should be paying for it, right? So so that's one of the themes. Um, but definitely also the underlying theme there is which costs count more and whose harms count more, being very much attuned to um, inequalities in terms of how global community and global attention would focus our attention oftentimes on Euro-American electoral events, right? Rather than um, events that happen in the global South. Yeah, and so how to properly advocate for workers, for journalists, civil society um, organizers um, who are much more underrepresented and, and less heard in this particular space. So we definitely wanted that event to be advancing a conversation that will help people advocate for themselves and, you know, um, advocate for the social media worker within their organization, how to provide them with better resources. Yeah. And what did you think, Justin? <laughs> what did you um, take out from that event? Oh, there were so many different great presentations uh, that I recall. I mean, I think one of the ones that uh, stands out to me, I remember um, uh, Sarah Wiley from, well, now at yeah, the Tau yeah. Center, who gave a great presentation on the extent to which the major tech platforms mm -hmm. dominate the fact-checking ecosystem For sure. in the news media, not just in the US or in Europe, but around the world, how important mm -hmm. their funding is um, and the extent to which you know, that, that puts them in a position of, of great leverage over you know, how fact-checking works. Um, so, so many different good conversations about that intersection, um, and it sparked a lot of ideas for me. But I want to come to, you know, one particular domain where we have seen perhaps the true costs of misinformation, which is uh, the Philippines. And in the last week, of course, we've seen an incredibly uh, important election, which has, uh, you know, had a uh, an outcome that I think, you know, you might characterize as uh, existential for the Philippines. Can you just for my listeners sake, if they're not paying close attention, can you tell folks what happened? Absolutely. Yeah. So the Philippines is one of Asia's oldest and largest democracies. Obviously, there's also a social media story that is very important to the Philippines as well. Um, we are the most intense users of social media, like in global surveys. The average uh, Filipino spends upwards of four and a half hours on social media each day in the tops um, global surveys. There's a lot of digital work that is outsourced as well um, to the Philippines. Um, just think about how content moderators are... Um, that is an industry um, in which the Philippines is known for. Like we are the digital janitors of the world, right? Like scrubbing filth and gore and toxic content on social media. But 
very proximal to these digital janitors are the online troll armies, right? That are responsible for toxic content, for vitriolic content. And this has been documented for many years, um, including my own work, um, the work of many journalists, um, yeah, thinking about Maria Ressa's advocacies on this, right? So uh, obviously, Rodrigo Duterte was elected in 2016. We know um, Rodrigo Duterte as this foul-mouthed populist leader, right, who has cursed Obama to the Pope and very much driving down that like villainizing liberal elites and journalists um, in the country. And now for 2022, many of us were hoping that could we swing it back the other way, right? There was even um, thought about maybe someone a little more centrist, right? Like the Philippines has a personality-driven political system. And so there's more than just two parties. So there's some who are kind of like in the middle. And no, like people were just so split out. And they ended up electing the son of a former dictator, where 30 years ago, um, this family, the Marcos family, had been exiled to Hawaii um, for in the aftermath of a long period of dictatorship. We call it the, uh, the martial law period. Um, so many atrocities, human rights abuses, and extrajudicial killings. And now 30 years after, this family is welcome back to the Malacanang Palace, the seat of power, with a resounding mandate, with an overmajority vote. And it is very concerning, and we need to discuss it as something that could also have a global impact. Um, authoritarians around the world are, you know, uh, taking notes uh, from his campaign, right? What they did. I don't want in this conversation to overly put the emphasis on social media or the internet. Because clearly there's something much more significant or much more, uh, I suppose, uh, dramatic going on in this particular case than simply the Internet. And yet you do talk in your piece in time, uh, which I would recommend everyone go and look at. It's called The World Should Be Worried About a Dictator's Son's Apparent Win in the Philippines. You do talk about the role of social media in helping the Marcuses essentially rebrand themselves, uh, yeah. bury the worst of their back story and put a fresh coat of paint on, mm -hmm. on their political brand, knowing the lens with which you look at these things. How do you think about the role of the internet? Yeah, that's a, such a thoughtful question, Justin, because it is important to think of the, the unique role of social media in this election or any election, right? But also not overstate and overhype. Sometimes like when you overhype social media as well, like you're guilty of the same brainwashing and hype that they would want you to believe, right? And so it's important to acknowledge and, and be critical about that relationship. And and to me, like the story of the Philippines is also the story of huge class inequalities, right? And I think that's what in my work, I always try to bring that out. And there's many attempts of retelling social media in the Philippines. And this is even, yeah, and I've called out um, several journalists, including journalist colleagues who I've collaborated on some of their news reports. So sometimes the Philippines is introduced by, you know, the foreign press as um, in the Philippines where over half of the population access Facebook through free basics. Um, the masses access Facebook through free basics. To me, like, that's often you're supposed to like follow that up with a critique of Facebook and its data extraction logics, right? And how they're able to uh, sell our data 
um, and profit from our data. But no, it's often used by many journalists to dunk on the masses. The masses who don't know any better, right? Like when they see something on social media. And I think that is really, really dangerous, right? I mean, it plays to those class divides. So yeah, thanks for asking, Justin. So for me, um, about the Marcos, it's important to recognize that I don't think their rehabilitation program, their, their brand rehab could have happened without social media, without YouTube, like enabling them, you know, creating an archive for them to, you know, upload all of these videos that rebrand the martial law era as a golden age rather than as a period of rep repression and atrocity. Right. So without those videos on YouTube, people won't have access to visuals and images, right? Um, images that are easily decontextualized and recontextualized for their agenda. So I think it's important uh, to think of it that way. But uh, the time piece that you uh, mentioned, Justin, also talks about the also the many um, failures of, you know, academics, journalists, um, yeah, educators in our, in the progressive movement in the Philippines too. Um, so social media did play a role here, um, but not in any kind of way of, you know, leading the masses into voting Marcos or like duping them, right? But it's more subtle and sophisticated. You also talk about the role of the media in particular. Um, how how's the sort of uh, Filipino media play into this? And you know, you mentioned Maria mm. Ressa, who has just won the Nobel Prize and who is kind of a constant voice for media freedoms. And yet, you point to this stratified media ecosystem mm. and the role that it played here. Um, how how would you characterize that? Yeah, that's so interesting. So, a uh, Philippines uh, media follows uh, many um, developing countries and their own uh, media ecosystems. In terms of, um, there is, um, yeah, for for many uh, developing countries, national media have this kind of educator kind of role um, um, toward um, their viewers, toward um, their listeners. And many in the um, national centers um, have a very kind of liberal orientation. So they try to um, position themselves as kind of neutral, the kind of objective journalism um, genre of reporting kind of normalized by many American media companies. Um, so that is very much present in our national uh, media ecosystem. But there's a disconnect between there and the local media, where the local media are much more partisan. Um, and they are explicitly aligned with mayor so and so and, and antagonistic to the, yeah, to the other one, right? Now, for me in 2022 and under Duterte, the impact of his regime of six years under a very aggressive and hostile president, right, who has normalized attacks against liberal media, what we are seeing is the regional media, uh, which is much more partisan. It's becoming more and more mainstream. So now uh, we didn't used to have this, um, and I was happy that we didn't have it for the longest time, but we will eventually have a kind of like Fox News at a national level. And that is really worrying, right? So a propaganda arm of the next president, and there's a channel, and I just won't name it because they had filed libel cases to my colleagues. Yeah, so it's like really, really scary times right now. So you do talk a little bit about the kind of high wire act now the mm -hmm. tech platforms especially western tech platforms will have to play mm -hmm. in the philippines you know i guess there's kind of 
two things I'm wondering, and yeah. they're maybe the flip side of the coin. One is if someone like Susan Wojcicki, the CEO of YouTube, mm-hmm. uh, were on this podcast, you know, what mm-hmm. would be the advice that you might give her about how to manage in the Philippines in, you know, this circumstance mm-hmm. that we now find ourselves in? And what would you tell her about how to perhaps help avoid <laughs> this type of situation happening elsewhere? Yeah, um, and I'd love to pick your brain at the uh, in this, uh, Justin, um, as someone I yeah respect also as a leading voice in terms of platform accountability discussions. Well, first um, to Susan, I would say that actually YouTube is kind of slower um, compared to the Meta platforms in terms of flagging partisan con- content. So the quote-unquote innovation um, in the disinformation landscape um, in 2022 is the rise of all these live streamers, all these reactor influencers, these news channel commentators on YouTube, and they're just there, right? So um, obviously, like we've said, right, like it's easier um, to flag like misinformation, which is text rather than long form and visual, right? And so those hour long, two hour long live streams of these news commentators, they were clear um, players in terms of playing into the partisan lines. And many of them are pro Marcos. That's one. Another example here, and this is really tricky, Justin. So Marcos's sister, Aimee Marcos, is a senator and she has her own official YouTube page. And it is interesting to think about how Marcos Jr. himself, the president-elect, has been super neutral in his official appearances. But the attacks to his opponents are carried out by his own family and his supporters, including Senator Aimee Marcos's YouTube channel, where she plays like parodies, attacking um, the rival vice president, Lenny Robredo, the rival of Marcos Jr. to the presidency. So that's on her official page. So to me, it circumvents official um, Philippines regulations that disallow negative advertising, but it's not quite advertising because it's her YouTube page and she's also an elected official. So, so to me, yeah, are you supposed to allow that? It also drops in conspiracies about her, about how she's like a puppet of different players, of even the U.S. government. So it's really tricky gray area. Yeah, I would love for Susan to comment on that for one. And the number two about platforms. Yeah, I would be curious what they should be doing under the Marcos administration. Because obviously, like uh, many academics, and I'm part of them, that yes, we they need to be doing more in terms of deplatforming and content moderation, right? But under the next administration, I worry that if they get too aggressive and identify specifically, you know, government accounts, they might become villainized as Twitter has become villainized in Nigeria, in India. Um, would we want to risk? a social media platform to be blocked in the Philippines, right? So yeah, any thoughts, Justin? I think that's a, a hard question. I'm reminded of just what's also happening in Brazil right mm-hmm. now uh, with Bolsonaro and the role that YouTube is playing there, uh, the kind of influencer ecosystem that you're referencing in the Philippines seems also to be you know, very active, of course. In, in Brazil, there seems to be almost a similar dynamic mm-hmm. in some ways. And the same dynamic where 
already the social platforms, including YouTube, have walked right up to the line mm -hmm. in terms of taking action against COVID disinformation in, in this particular yeah. instance in Brazil um, and may draw the ire of, mm -hmm. you know, the president, especially as the election gets nearer. Um, yeah. So it seems like some similar dynamics across the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and medical misinfo as something that um, Brazil leaders have themselves um, perpetuated, right? But YouTube seems to be a bit more clear, um, would you say, in terms of health uh, messaging and health messages, um, but political messages are much more in the gray area. So, so yeah, um, I do find it complicated. I am advocating for strategic policy initiatives between academics, journalists, yeah, advocates like Maria Ressa and platforms themselves. Um, in terms of navigating a thorny um, regulatory environment under Marcos. Again, remember his father under martial law had blocked the press and had only allowed for propaganda channels. So no free press under him. I don't predict that that's what he's going to do. Um, the Marcos, uh, Marcos Jr., that that's what he's going to do. What I predict that he will uh, do, though, is he will be pressuring platforms and their financial support for their fact-checkers, for the third-party fact-checkers and the local media that they seem to be supporting because Marcos has himself declared in various interviews that he is a victim of local journalists and local fact-checkers. And to the extent that he sees journalists and fact-checkers are getting, you know, financial support from platforms, he would be end up targeting platforms in that kind of discussion. And that will be a pain point for both local media and platforms themselves. So there needs to be more strategic cooperation here rather than just clear lines of of right and wrong content, but there needs to be a strategy when they publish, you know, um, an expose of inauthentic coordinated behavior. How might that be better communicated under, you know, the next administration? I think these are very um, challenging questions that I know many of our colleagues in India, Brazil, Nigeria, Kenya are also facing. So when you step back from the situation in the Philippines, you, in, as you do in this timepiece, and you look at the rise of, mm. uh, you know, authoritarianism, even to some extent, the rise of liberal democracies mm -hmm. that you reference. It's just a total uh, global shift, right? When we were, this is a now a decade long trend, mm -hmm. um, if not longer. We know which way it's headed. Do the social platforms, to your mind, have uh, some larger responsibility in a time of democratic backsliding? I mean, is there? Is there something more dramatic they should be doing in this world we're in at the moment? Hmm, that's a good question. In terms of what platforms um can't um yeah should be doing more of, yeah um and a lot of the efforts um in the Philippines yeah I do credit some social media platforms who have opened up you know like back channel support for journalists um, and local yeah, fact checkers, even activists and academics who have been um, targets of harassment and um, red tagging, like insinuating that they are communist sympathizers. Um, yeah, um, something that um, was definitely a strategy of the Duterte government to villainize their critics um, with that label. So there are those kinds of back channel mechanisms 
I can also sense though, like when I um, when I interact with local public policy officers of these platforms, yeah, in the Philippines, and I've interacted with some other um, public policy officers in country in global South countries, they would themselves well, they would it would be revealed in during our interaction how truly disempowered they are like in the hierarchy like you could tell you know like when they invite us to meet their other teammates it's like oh they actually need our research for them to lobby for resources within their own company it's like yeah it's like yeah how how challenging could that be right like um so so to me it's also interesting to think of it that way that within the company the national level policy officers and some of them are well-meaning some are pretty lazy let's be honest right um but many of them are disempowered within the hierarchy so to what extent we can influence them um, and support them uh, is a good question but Yes, um, certainly discussions of transparency mechanisms would be good. I think folks at companies like Reset, who advance um, platform accountability measures, are very um, strong um, and empowered. Um, I know of one initiative around supply chain transparency of platforms, like when platforms um, partner with, you know, um, local companies for content moderation work or whatever kind of yeah other uh, third party service, that there needs to be transparency mechanisms around that. I'm mostly for uh, on the side of transparency accountability, having had direct experience with regimes of censorship, right? So and that's why I'm worried under yeah Marcos for the Philippines. So let's just, I want to spend just a couple of minutes on um, your, your worker-centered uh, research uh, as well. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, of course, that the Philippines is um, a kind of destination for outsourced, you know, activity. You know, I think a lot of folks don't realize the extent to which there is so much internet entrepreneurship in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know how that ecosystem may change in this context or if it will or, or not. I don't know. How do you think about that world that you study and its mm -hmm. relationship to these issues? I think this is an opportunity for me to talk about my own distinct approach to disinformation studies, which is the worker-centered approach, right? So some um, folks obviously specialize in the computational analysis. I'm not a big data expert at all. So I do ethnography. Um, after the 2016 election of Duterte, I wanted to interview all the political campaigners who participated in national but also local races. And I wanted to make my way down their hierarchy. So who's your digital strategist? And then who's your who's the influencer team? And then who's the copy paster, you know, like the, the one who boosts these messages within community groups. So the study that I authored with my um, colleague Jason Cabanas in the Philippines is called Architects of Network Disinformation Behind the Scenes of Troll Accounts and Fake News Production in the Philippines. So we wanted to interview who exactly are the paid trolls? Yeah, how much are they getting paid? Um, do they, you, you know, have even like contracts and re official receipts when they do troll work for politicians? And also the question of ethics and morality, like how do these folks sleep at night, right? So to me, like, did 
did anyone really aspire to become a paid troll, right? And so that to me what is the story of the study. And we retell different portraits of these workers from the very high powered, very arrogant PR firm strategist who, you know, one of them told us in an interview, she was just bored doing marketing for shampoos. She's like, I'm so bored doing that. I've trended so many times on Twitter. I want to consult for a politician with a very tarnished reputation and get people to like them again. Because it's just a personal challenge for her, right? And so it's funny to think of it that way and, and very ab abhorrent to hear her speak of it of political games in a kind of Game of Thrones kind of fashion, right? And she sees herself as a strategist. And then you have like at the opposite extreme, you know, a college, fresh out of college, young person um, who actually was deceived into doing political operations. Like they signed up to be a PR associate in a PR firm. And it was only on day one that they find out, oh, the actual work is actually to do attack memes um, against the rival um, of the mayor of the city mayor. So to me, it's important to narrate those stories beyond heroes versus villains binaries, but to talk about easy complicities within, within these kinds of outsourced work arrangements in a broader context of economic precarity in the Philippines. And I apply that ethos in many of my other work. Did you see hmm. the um, QAnon documentary on HBO? I did. I you did? I think I finished it, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So much of it took place in the Philippines, which was uh -huh. uh, yeah. sort of surprising <laughs> on some talking, level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there seemed to be that kind of the Watkinses seemed to be kind of stewing in that world of, of um, mm -hmm. being able to take advantage of low cost um, yeah. Internet labor in the Philippines and to, to do the things that they were up to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with maybe some kind of political ideology or interest, but also a lot of just, mm -hmm. you know, entrepreneurial interest and yep. desire to make money. And it just seemed to me that that kind of, I don't know, the, the economic and the political kind of, yeah, they blur. blend, they blur mm -hmm. and they, they become impossible to distinguish in a way. Absolutely. Justin. Yeah. So um, the Philippines is not yet so we are a personality-oriented political system. That's how political scientists describe our um, political system in that the different politicians and their parties don't have clear ideological differences as you would have between the Democrat Party and the Republican Party in the U.S. And so many of their, like when you drill it down to policies, they would actually agree on many of the policies, but how they perceive their relationship with the masses, how they emphasize whether it's about democratic institutions or more kind of uh, dole out kind of approaches to the masses. So that's where they might kind of differ. Going back to your story of are people in it for, yeah, just for the job and just for the, the paycheck or whether they really believe in, in the positions of their clients? I think that's such a good question. So for many of my respondents, that would depend on where they are in the hierarchy. So if you're, if you are one of those top level PR strategist, there tends to be more of a political alignment that, yeah, I do support my client. 
However, yeah, as I have said as well, there's those who would say, you know, I'm just in it for the adventure. It's just, yeah, my point in my career where I can take big risks, you know, um, because I've proven myself um, in the corporate world and I, I want to take a polit uh, political clients. But for those at the bottom, they tend to be just doing it for the money. So it's mostly a story, yeah, of economic precarity. And that's why some of the approaches of unmasking the trolls, quote-unquote, that journalists tend to do in the Philippines and even activists. I'm a little uncomfortable, to be honest, that, you know, um, let's unmask this um, low-level account operator or let's unmask this meme page operator in the Philippines. Because I always think about, oh, we forget who, who the top troll is and who, the, who their boss actually is. And we, again, dunk on the masses and we assume whom we assume to be, yeah, like uneducated and, you know, um, yeah, come from uh, less respectable backgrounds. And that's why we can, you know, name and shame them. But it's also, funnily enough, in, in our study, we say the big elite um, strategists, it's almost like an open secret who they are. So we've had Senate investigation after Senate investigation, and we're still always about the influencers. We're still always about, you know, the sexy blogger who has a million followers. She's the, the fake news queen. We're still shaming her, slut shaming her as well on social media. But like her boss is never, um, you know, called into the hearing, even though sometimes their names are dropped there. But yeah, and this is also a challenge. Um, the politicians have a debt of gratitude to their strategists, right? Like these people helped elect them in power. So, yeah, I do get it that, okay, we're just going to scapegoat it to the influencers. But yeah, the top level strategist is harder to hold them accountable. And yeah, and this is where, um, yeah, the whole idea of a quote unquote whole of society approach is um, necessary. You know, we talk quite a lot about the idea of disinformation, the problems of the platforms being economic problems or being driven by the economics of, of the tech platforms. I appreciate very much you kind of also situating it in a larger economic context mm. of inequality and the appetite of some of these people to get involved, um, you know, whether you're a Macedonian Mm -hmm. teenager or yeah. a, mm -hmm. a, a, a maybe a Filipino contract meme maker. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You're trying I, to pay the bills, right? Yeah. I love the, yeah, the work of, yeah, colleagues, Jane Litvinenko, Craig Silverman, William Kong of, but, um, uh, formerly of BuzzFeed there and other places now. Um, yeah. Uh, on disinformation for hire, right? And this to me is a specific story, um, that is super relevant. Well, sorry, sorry, not specific story. It's super relevant to the global South in particular where stories of economic precarity play into disinformation and the thriving local industries of disinformation where you have the troll farms, you have the PR firms, you have the digital boutique agencies, you have influencer agencies, all part of the gray area of political campaigns. They do black operations, influence operations, attack messaging for political clients, right? And so, and the ideological differences 
um, yeah, as you say, they're kind of like really blurry, right? Like they're not super distinct. Um, sometimes, uh, yeah, we even have examples of the PR firm switching midstream during an election cycle that their client is about to lose. So they switched. Yeah, to the to the winning client, just so to make sure that in the next administration they're gonna get some corporate accounts and you know and and some business accounts from them. So it's totally weird that yeah these people work unregulated um, for political consultancies and they expect the same lax regulation of corporate marketing to be applied to political marketing when it should be more regulated, more transparent, and they should be held accountable for the for the toxic content of specific campaigns. So to what extent we can have more legal innovations around campaign political advertising, political marketing, and um, transparency initiatives around that, we would love to hear from yeah, other colleagues, yeah, including those from the Global North, to work with us researchers in the global south to think of um, new regulations around these. Um, for many of us in the global south, the governments and our politicians are really the worst culprits of disinformation, right? And they need to be held accountable just as we need to hold accountable platforms. I have talked to Maria Ressa in the past, had her on this podcast. And one thing that she sort of impressed upon me is, you know, the extent to which folks in the West, particularly in the United States, need to do more to get these platforms under control in order to help address the systemic issues that are so pronounced in places like the Philippines. Do you agree with that kind of perspective? Do you feel like there's more that needs to be done in the US in order to kind of address these problems and that might have ultimately a knock-on effect elsewhere in the world? I do see myself as in a complementary and supplementary uh, mode um, to discussions of platform accountability. So my work, which is mostly about the workers in the disinformation for higher industries, um, would obviously gear my policy recommendations more in terms of how do we regulate these industries, these complicit industries, right? Um, just as other people will hold the platforms accountable. So, um, yeah, so I see my, my work as very complementary there. And I do see there's a lot of momentum around platform accountability measures. For many of us in the global south, sometimes we see it sometimes as, oh, some of these discussions also overlook the political elites who are truly responsible for toxic political content and hostile environments within countries. Um, and therefore, maybe what we need to be doing here is more strategic engagements with the um, platform representatives within countries. Yeah, again, thinking of like India examples, right, where um, Twitter's local um, workers and local officers were villainized by the Modi government, right? So where should academics and um, and journalists and activists stand in that within that fight? They're caught in the crosshairs um, between government and platforms, right? So so to me, I see my work as complementary there. Well, Jonathan, I appreciate your work very much, and I hope you'll come back and tell us about it as it mm -hmm. continues on. Yeah, and I would love to also invite your listeners to my podcast, which is the media outreach uh, translation of my ethnographic work, um, 
the podcast is entitled Catch Me If You Can um, and available on Apple and Spotify. And you get to actually hear from trolls, PR strategists and influencers. Um, yeah, and hear from their own voice, how they got into the kind of work that they did. And it's co-hosted by a journalist, Kat Ventura, and we editorialize and comment on their expressions as well so it's not you know just a completely uh, a complete retelling of the perpetrator's perspective but it's also a critique of the perpetrator but it's an interesting show and it uh, recently um yeah made it to the top 10 of the philippines charts it's um in mostly english but we switch to tagalog in certain phrases so yeah that's awesome i'll make sure to include a link in the show notes for this particular episode and um, I hope folks will check it out. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for Thank having me. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And thank you for listening. Press.